Welcome to another edition of the Always Be Testing Podcast with your host, Ty DeGrange. Get a guided tour of the world of growth, performance marketing, customer acquisition, paid media, and affiliate marketing. We talk with industry experts and discuss experiments and their learnings in growth, marketing, and life. Time to nerd out, check your biases at the door, and have some fun talking about data-driven growth and lessons learned. Welcome to another episode of the Always Be Testing podcast. I'm your host, Ty DeGrange, and I am thrilled to talk with Chris Tragett today. Welcome, Chris. Thanks very much. Uh, great to talk to you again. It's been a while since we met back in uh, ooh, back in April. Yeah, absolutely. I think we were in Miami for PI Live. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So good to have you on today. And uh, I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, for those of you who don't know, Chris is a true affiliate marketing legend, veteran. He's built products from from the ground up, uh, launched publisher discovery to acquisition, and is now building Moonpole. He's had some great experiences, so ready to dive in with him today. And thanks so much for joining us. Great, it's a pleasure. Absolutely. So maybe just starting off, tell us about your your background, Chris. I know I think people would find it fascinating. Somebody as old as me goes back a long way. Uh, I started off. Uh, out of college, ran a pub for four years, or in the state, I call it a bar, but basically ran a pub, uh, which was an interesting thing and made me vow never to ever think in terms of going into running a pub or running anything, uh, dealing with kind of <laughs> for food and drink and things. But yeah, that's that was fun. Then an art material shop, which and I thought, no, I don't want to be. Now, Chris, is there is there any similarity between uh, maybe managing a pub and managing affiliates? <laughs> it's about relationships i would say that's about the, the key thing it's about the relationships and and if you've got the relationships right with your regulars in a pub then they come back and you know what they're doing you've got an idea what they're about if somebody you know has an argument uh, with a friend in the pub and you know them then it's fine if they don't know them you worry but, uh, but luckily with an affiliate you don't get those kind of arguments it tends to be more about attribution or yeah yeah you know the game <laughs> <laughs> love it i interrupted your your kind of background story to, to kind of delve into that a little bit but we'd love to hear more if you if you have more to share there yeah i'm it's, i think they call it a patchwork portfolio career so after the pub i ran an art material shop because my degree was in art, uh, history of art and art, fine arts and things like that. Uh, fell then into working with a friend who had a print company and I started typesetting on an eight inch Mac. If you can imagine the fun of, of, well, actually before that, I was sending stuff using extremely early versions of HTML where we, we specified the font, closed font and all of that stuff. And we sent that stuff down a 4,800 board modem to a place that printed out the galleys of text, which you then glued down with wax, old school type setting stuff. So I did it that way. Then we bought an eight inch Mac and the excitement of that. You couldn't see the page, but you knew that you were, you were doing stuff. You had to move the page around to work on PageMaker 1, where things were going to be. But that was exciting because you had a whole page of stuff at once with no galleys, no cutting. Yeah. So yeah, I got involved in on-screen stuff way back then. Then I sold after that. That's amazing. Sold newspaper advertising, um, ended up joining a design agency and was 
what they call a bag carrier in Britain. Basically, I was kind of running from the studio to the client, and it might be anything from a mining machinery company to Procter & Gamble. So it's kind of all sorts of different types of stuff. As part of that, while I was there, That's amazing. Uh, I got involved um, from a local charity with these kind of fundraising web shops from a company called Biat. This is in about the middle of 2002, early 2002. Had about six shops in it, so Marks and Spencers and the two or three others and whatever. And as is the want of design agencies, when uh, Procter & Gamble decided they were moving all of their stuff to London, got made redundant. But then, bizarrely, as part of my kind of design work, I was doing some work for GE and needed somebody to do some database stuff. So this is while we're still rolling and um, needed somebody to do it. Found somebody via a friend of a friend and met Steve Brown on a roundabout in Surrey. We went to GE's office, won the contract. We did the this kind of multiple multi-language mailer into kind of uh, for events in Switzerland and Portugal and whatever I think it's what it was anyway. And then kind of that was the only time I've met Steve and bizarre kind of meeting kind of in a cafe bill roundabout. We go to the meeting, start the deal. Great job. Roll forward six months. That's amazing. Can I ask you, how did you guys pull that off? Landing GE is, especially at that time, was a quite a coup. Can you share more about what do you think got the deal done? I think with fairly innovative agency, which is quite cool. We'd done quite a lot of mailings for um, P&G anyway, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But there weren't many people could could deal with, I think, multi-language, multi-country database management from which we then pulled out the, the lists for mailing. And I, I kind of put together the structure for the mailing envelope contents, all the rest of it. And, and that was all mailed out successfully and they got several hundred people, bums on seats, as they call it in the UK, mm-hmm. to enable them to have these conferences. And I would imagine knowing GE, each one of the contracts they win from these conferences is worth a fortune. So I think if I recall, that contract was about £14,000 UK. So, and that was 2001. So that's a long, that's a lot of cash back then. Um, it was a lot of mailing. Yeah. And then kind of whilst I was kicking my heels after the uh, P&G work tried up, Somebody mentioned that this company, Perfiliate in Newcastle, was looking for for somebody, and so I gave a call, and it turned out it was Steve Brown's bunch again. So uh, I ended up December 2002 at Biat, which within a space of a month or so, Mal Cowley and Paul Fellows and Steve had eventually kind of thought, actually, we can turn this into a network. So... By mid-03, we were an affiliate network as well, which was a bit of fun. We started winning some good contracts. Uh, I think in 04, we held our first uh, event, would you call it, not quite a conference, but our first affiliate event, where we were entirely unusual amongst networks that we encouraged our advertisers to meet with our affiliates. If you were at one of the other big networks, they were always chaperoned or they were never allowed to meet or they were told our affiliates are are, they're unique and unusual and you need to just trust us. But uh, we set up these over the years, set up these events called speakeasies, which started in a pub in London. Of course. So we kind of uh, 
the guy from BT, which is like the UK's at the time, the UK's biggest mobile phone operator and uh, broadband operator, mm-hmm. was absolutely gobsmacked. And he turned, he says, oh, I would love to have a chat with him. He says, yeah, have a chat, have a beer. What do you fancy? And we'll, he says, you don't want to come and sit with him? Why? It's your business. It's his business. It's nothing to do with me. We're just the enablers. So that was, I think, the start of transparency in affiliate. There wasn't any beforehand. Uh, there was no transparency for one of the networks who actually had a two and a two point five, two and a half, two thousand two hundred and fifty percent override uh, on one of its programs. We won it not knowing what's going on because we heard that oh yeah, the affiliate commission at twenty pounds, you had a thirty percent, so twenty six pounds. So we went in and won the contract on that and got a very irate phone call a few days later when the previous network we realised they've been earning £50, but only paying the affiliate 20 <laughs> So that was an interesting kind of um, shakedown in the affiliate marketplace. And, uh, yeah, it's exciting running a, a network and or be, being part of, involved in a network. Started off with four of us, and then by 2007 or so, there were, I've forgotten how many, I think 50-odd staff and about 70 million turnover, if I remember, so... And we had some of the biggest programs in, in the world, really. People like Ticketmaster, um, Apple, um, a whole bunch of other stuff like that. Yeah. In your experience, what would you say kind of you started to identify as your superpower or what you gravitated to in the affiliate industry as you got started and grew by it? I think it's um, honesty, transparency. At the time, we had a policy of... Uh, if we were defaulted on by an advertiser and they weren't paying their bills, we would pay the affiliates anyway, which seems to go down quite well with affiliates, as you probably understand. And that was without kind of insurance against it or whatever. So there were a few tricky moments, as you probably understand in the early days, but uh, it came back rewarded in much firmer relationships as all the affiliates. And of course, the advertisers responded to that, knowing that we had really really loyal affiliate base behind us as well. How did you prevent against those taking advantage of that? Or do you think that's a policy that could be continued in some capacity? Because it's a fascinating idea. It's, I think perhaps it's a slightly kind of uh, trickier world and things are happening on so much bigger scale now. Back in those days, programs were not massive necessarily. Yeah. And now it's gone from back then, you know, Affiliate being five, six percent of a company's turnover, it can now be 18, 20 percent, and that's big bucks. It's a big deal for a lot of advertisers. So, mm-hmm. and actually, for any organization being able to have the spare cash capacity to manage somebody going down, particularly at a time between, say, 2008, 2018, yeah. those kind of periods, uh, a company can go, go pop like that, leaving owing millions. Yeah. That's I think it's not yeah. not doable again. It's a great gimmick at the time, maybe. Yeah, you're not quite a bank, uh, as they say, so it uh, doesn't really make sense. But as we will get to in this episode, perhaps technology is the answer and transparency through technology, which we'll, which we'll get to. Yeah, exactly. And I think transparency can be the next bit we are playing at. Um, kind of after Biat, we sold Biat to AOL for a lot, which is very nice. And then, congrats! Yeah, it was a, it was a well, a lot of very, very hard week work by Steve Brown, who is the 
um, the guy that managed the whole process, but running between lawyers' offices for about a year or something, from the sound of things. <laughs> and, and and after AOL had spent a year, couple of years, kind of sucking the juice out of it and ruining it, like it does with most companies. Um, so you can edit that out if you want. But <laughs> Awin came. I think that's the good stuff. Yeah, Awin came in and and I would say, but potentially rescued. Byat was still about the biggest network in the UK at the time. Still. Mm-hmm. Out of all of the mobile phone networks, but the Byat network ran every one but one. All but Vodafone was still on Byat network. Mm-hmm. I was running Sky TV program. We had um, Ticketmaster, huge numbers of big programs. And, uh, yeah, kind of millions a month in terms of affiliate commissions, which is kind of what you want to, what you want to hear going on. I left shortly after the acquisition by AWIN and went client-side for a year and had a bit of fun. Um, it was quite different, actually, kind of starting a program app and actually started the program and launched on CJ, which, as it was in web hosting, it made most sense because pretty much every other web hosting provider was on CJ. That's where the affiliates were. And I think that's the information I got from doing that was it's bloody hard recruiting affiliates, damn hard getting affiliates on your program if you're new and untried. So that's really, really tough. But it's also hard actually finding affiliates. Uh, and that was a real, real issue. And it's Google search is not the way to go. But back in 2010 stroke 11, that's all I had to go on. And so um, got the program up and running. It's still running very successfully on CJ. So it must be doing the right kind of stuff. It's still, um, and it's, it was uh, cutting its numbers even from the quite early days when I had quite a few really quite nice, loyal, old friends from affiliate who were the guys who were the mainstay of the initial affiliates on the program. So it was it was a good learning experience from my perspective on, on that side of the industry. After that, um, I'm trying to think, oh, it's while I was doing that. Steve Brown gave me a phone call again, I think, uh, and um, he'd just started up an SEO company or, or got involved in and invested in a company called Linkdex, which he may have come across which was trying to become a competitor to conductor or bright edge in those kinds of people. Mm-hmm. He was doing some pretty good stuff. So I ended up kind of going there, doing marketing and selling. And it was, mm-hmm. I'm not a specialist in anything, you know, as you can tell from my kind of uh, checkered history of uh, running pubs and, uh, and selling advertising. So I, I can pretty much cut, cut myself to anything. So I ended up doing marketing and, um, running events and what else we were doing. Oh, yeah, I was selling as well. So we'd go into, into agencies to sell the LinkedIn product. Uh, from very early on, I said to Steve, hey, we could find affiliates with this, couldn't we? Because it was basically it was backlink analysis. So mm-hmm. from that, Steve and I kind of basically worked out, okay, and within the space of a few few months, we had an early version of what was called LinkedIn public publisher discovery. And... Uh, Got a few good clients on board, and then Linkdex was acquired in 2016 or late 2015, early 2016. And they thought, right, we're going to concentrate on the SEO stuff, don't want this affiliate stuff. And I said, well, I'll give you a fiver for the software for the data. Um, it turned out a bit more than a fiver, but basically, I was going to, we kind of, I took on myself and a colleague, the two of us, took on that, set up a, a separate company. And we started off with kind of um, clients like uh, oh, June. 
like Apple was one of our clients and Adidas, some fairly big clients who were using us to find affiliates. And we started working with a whole load of other people at DAZN, I've forgotten how, DAZN would be, I think, the States here, uh, which is doing kind of sports stuff. And they just needed to find, okay, we're going to set up in Canada. We need some Canadian affiliates like now. And so it's kind of, um, it was quite fun doing that stuff. But it was really manual because it's based on lists of SEO stuff. But it actually enabled us to to analyze the data in some detail and find the appropriate affiliates. So 2016, we, we grew that to reasonable enough to be able to be going to most of the conferences. So I did quite a few affiliates, some at East and West and um, mm-hmm. or Germany, Amsterdam, Barcelona. So we did quite a few events signing up and also in the gambling area, which is quite different. We discovered how different gambling and, and Forex is as an affiliate market. So those differences are, are quite marked, as you probably know yourself. So that was quite fun. 2018, somebody came knocking on the door saying, we've got this thing which is AI-based and it deals with a a network's internal affiliates. And they were working with a small UK network called Affiliate Future and analysing their internal affiliates to to match affiliate with advertiser. Quite clever. And so they acquired our data and acquired us. Uh, So which was quite nice to be able to sell a company and carry on working with it. So we helped to develop that process and develop that product. So it's a machine learning and AI-driven version of publishing. So no longer lists. You're working on a platform and you say, yeah, I want mm-hmm. the kind of affiliates who work with, say, three, four networks, but are also working in, say, pet foods or in fashion or whatever it might be. And the other beauty for a an advertiser's point of view is they can go into publisher discovery and say, right, I'm Bloomingdale's. Who's on the Macy's program? And you can just hit the button and you come up with all Macy's two and a half thousand publishers that have got public links on their site. Really simple. And then there's the the ability to kind of find the email address within the platform, contact them, recruit them. So yeah, that was fun. Chris, what would you say kind of, fueled the growth of publisher discovery. Obviously, that's a really compelling value proposition. You had growth leading up to the introduction of AI. You had growth after that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what do you think led to the success of publisher discovery? I think it was because, well, as I identified when trying to do it myself, it's really tough finding affiliates. And the usual way is just kind of trawling through Google by keyword, which is a real long-hand way of doing it. Publishers discovery enable you to short, kind of shortcut that. Initially, with our old manual version, just by looking at awin1.com or quickserve.com and the other domains for CJ and whatever, it was clunky, but it worked. It enabled you to look at all of those guys and work out which ones are appropriate. And then you can work out which ones are then connected to which programs. So you can see, ah, right, they're the guys promoting Dell. So they're obviously in the right sector. So therefore you can then, but you can you can then segment the right bunch of affiliates and then start recruiting. And that's, and it's the shortcut bit, isn't it? It just saved hours. And I think one of the networks that worked with this said it saved about five hours a week of affiliate recruiting which is, you know, significant for an account management mm-hmm. time period. So that kind of stuff, 
it pays for it. And Chris, with regard to the networks, were you technically tapping via API to be able to enable that? Or was it by some other integration or partnership? No, Net, all the data is public domain. So it's it's kind of, if you do a backlink analysis for awin1.com, you come up with a great list if you're using SEMrush or whatever it might be, actually doing something. UTM-based identification, right? And uh, not even necessarily that, because if you if you look at awin1.com forward slash, and it will have um, A equals blah, B equals V equals such and such. Same going into impact. It's very simple. It's domain.com slash. So link structure? Number dot slash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So link structure was the only thing you needed to determine who was linking to who in the affiliate industry. Exactly. Yeah. It's that simple. So, um, just finding on who's TM75, whatever it is. Um, I've forgotten the numbers now, but yeah, the Ticketmaster one on Impact now is TM75.net slash C slash blah. Piece of cake to dis- decipher it. So not that complex. That's great. When you're building, you're thinking about product development, this will come up probably in other topics as well, but how are you able to kind of prioritize building uh, products like these and kind of informing what you're doing now with Moonpool. I'm, I'm curious to learn more, especially for those interested in product, yeah. those interested in partner marketing related products. Really, really uh, fascinating to hear more about your background there. Yeah, I think with Publisher Discovery, it was kind of, we were slaloming, kind of just, oh, that works. Try that. And if that comes back with money on it, then great you carry on with it mm-hmm. and it's about understanding where it can go to and so with publisher discovery you thought okay yeah we can do that and um, but and then you can flip it on its head and do something which is publisher side so looking for programs so the potential for that uh, and understanding what you can do with the data and it's just being slightly more creative with the, the data you're working with to come up with something which somebody wants to buy and the key thing is, is, is it going to save somebody time and effort? Because that's the, the goal of any automation. If you can automate something, it's got to make it faster, make it simpler, make it slicker, make it actually deliver what you want without all the, the usual problems you'd have with, you know, go back to Google search or is this guy a website? Who owns it? Um, oh, I can't find who's the who is for it. Those kinds of stuff. You avoid all of that because it's all it's all there. It's all dealt with. And that's what we were trying to do, stuff which is yeah, is a no-brainer. Ah, oh, why wouldn't you do that? And I think the same things in, inform the things we're doing with Moonpools. How about doing this? Ah, oh, yeah, that's great, but it's not urgent. So that goes down the road to six months' time for a, another facing product. And just recently, just conversations with people at conferences has led to us is thinking, actually, no, what we thought might be the, the route to go by talking to people about how we could take save them time and save and make life easier for them, but also more importantly, make things actually work better for them. We just change the way we look at stuff and change the way we position the product. Don't be frightened to completely ditch an avenue you've started going up because you think that's the right thing. If you talk to people and they, they think, nah, just ditch it, bring it back later, maybe as an additional part to another part of the product at a later date. But uh, follow where people are actually wanting the time and effort to be put in from their perspective. Always follow what somebody wants rather than what you want to sell. How do you think about 
the kind of gathering of qualitative and quantitative customer feedback and discovery and understanding what customer needs, what are the pain customers looking for, what are they not looking for, what are their pain points to kind of uncover those great value props in product. Like what how would you how have you approached that with both? Yeah, in terms of kind of understanding how people are using it, it's great to use I mean it's amazing that tools like amplitude cost nothing, which is balmy, absolutely nuts. If you use amplitude, if you're building a product, get amplitude built into it from the ground up. You then have an idea of exactly what people are doing inside your, your website. You really understand then, oh, yes, they are doing that. Oh, no, nobody actually touches that button ever. So, okay, it's not doing, not adding value. Maybe hold a little bit of a focus group with some of your stronger users. Say, have you looked at this? Yeah, it doesn't do much for us, in which case you think, yeah, pointless. Let's move on to something else. And it enables you to kind of to look at behaviors without even having to go to some hot jar of looking where people in, in a microscopic level are, are clicking on a page. The amplitude will tell you what they're clicking on. And then you can assess across, you know, 10, 100,000 users, which parts are most useful, what the usual routes are. And then you just make those routes easier. Those kinds of things. And if that's what's important, then you have to make sure the UI is doing the same thing, following the same process. So that you make those simple routes to visually follow. Uh, that way it makes it much faster for people to find the stuff they want. That's awesome. With Moonpole, how did that kind of get sparked, kicked off? How, what was the genesis of Moonpole? It's entirely a product of Steve's massive brain. Steve has an ability to create yeah. a vision from half an idea and build stuff it worked very well with uh with Biat, of course and it's worked pretty well since then and moonpool's no different he's um he has an uncanny ability to create from uh, a raw vision something that can actually work and the fact that this is now my third journey with steve proves that i probably think in a usefully similar way but um maybe with a bit of a Venn diagram thing, I do stuff with you. And he says, yeah, you're future gazing, Chris. So um, I'm normally kind of four months down the road where Steve's trying to make stuff happen now. <laughs> but um, having that ability to kind of to think around a, pro- a product and I can think, okay, yeah, it'd be nice to be able to get to that kind of stuff. I reckon from conversations, this would be really useful, but we don't know that yet. Let's have a look and see if we can get the lily pad to get across the pond to make that work. Uh, if you know my, <laughs> I, I like when you're usually. <laughs> no, I love it. And it, it, with your collaboration with Steve, what has made it work? It sounds like there's elements of forward thinking here and now visionary mm. in, integrator. Like, how do you, how do you balance that? It sounds really, really cool. I don't think it's that complex. Steve's the guy with the original vision. I just basically try and, uh, I try and, put some jam on the bread and butter, which uh, hopefully some of the ideas stick. Some of them have worked, which is great. And some of them will work in future, I'm sure, because I think there's some pretty cool things I think we can be doing with Moonpool. We're coming along, we're doing some very exciting stuff now with uh, Moonpool verification. So it enables programs to say, yes, this works. And it's, it's worked every week for the past X, you know. So, so we, the automated system enables people to check a program and audit the program weekly, make sure that the links work as you would expect to them. And the toughest part is actually understanding what's happening in that 
in that handover, the affiliate handover process between the, the publisher side and the advertiser. And so much technology now gets, becomes involved that things can get in the way. Things like consent management platforms, which are becoming, well, they've been an issue across the whole of Europe and uh, UK, certainly. But now you've got something like 10 states, or is it now 11 states in the US, all of whom now have privacy regulations coming in. Um, that are requiring people to say, yes, I'm okay with cookies or don't sell my data or for some reason every single state seems to be different. It seems bizarre to me across here, across, but there you go. But uh, that kind of stuff can interfere with, you know, when according to, I think, I'm trying to think where it was, I think one of the magazines was stating that something around 48 to 50% of consumers reject cookies and don't accept. That can be really quite scary if you're running an affiliate program. So if only if half of your cookies are likely to be rejected, then I think affiliate cookies need to be dealt with slightly different, third or first, first party. Third party, of course, will disappear soon. But uh, your first party cookie, if it's coming from a site where the consumer understands that there's a relationship then it should not be dealt with as a marketing one. It should be dealt with as a necessary one. I think as very much uh, as uh, James Little has argued quite forcibly across various conferences recently, that somebody coming from a cashback site, the contract has started with the cashback site, not with the landing on the, cons- the advertiser's page, because they want their cashback. If that's held up by a co- first-party cookie, which doesn't, which is not necessary, then the whole kind of, premise of, of the contract is broken. So cashback and to some extent, maybe coupon sites, the cookie should be allowed to run through. Interesting. I, do you think that there's going to have to be, and what do you think the end goal of that debate is? Because we kind of jumped into that topic. Is there going to have to be some kind of a almost nexus-like national or state ruling because it feels like there's a number of like vocal voices arguing on both sides with legitimate questions. Where do you think that's going? Where do we think we land in years down the road or months? In the, the US, it's difficult to say. In Europe, of course, we've segment, fragmented again slightly. But even though mm-hmm. UK is no longer effectively part of the EU, most companies in the UK follow EU law because it's the only way they're going to sell into Europe. Um, you're not going to do it by adopting a different uh, legal standard. In the US, it's very difficult, different anyway because you had, as you say, the Amazon Nexus issue. There will be issues when you're dealing with something which is not just, say, for instance, uh, statewide. It's not like popping along, along to your local 7-Eleven or Walmart. Stuff is national or global. If you can buy from Kaspersky, you're buying from Kaspersky anywhere in the world. Or same same with Dell. I looked on CJ the other day. I think there's thirty odd separate programs. They're all they're all totally separate, all with different legal parameters for Germany, for Spain, for US, for UK, etc. So it's very difficult for an advertiser to deal with all of those legal parameters. From a publisher point of view, they don't have necessarily that viewpoint and the understanding of the legal stuff. So it's really tough, and it's and it's one that can only kind of work well through transparency, through an understandings between publisher and advertiser. Yeah, this is what happens. If you're sending, if you're running a global, say, email campaign, 
you need to have the understanding that if you're sending to different sites, you need to make sure you segment your email list so that it's going to the right place and you're dealing with the right kind of right kind of intros, as it were. And that's down to big publishers, big advertisers working together in more of a partnership way. How would you say there's a lot in there, there's a lot to kind of unpack and talk through, but if you think about, you know, Loophole is helping on a number of levels. What would you say, how big is the problem, would you say? Like the, the linking not working, yeah. the, the linking not having the, um, what's the percent that that's impacting the industry in your opinion? The problems are, they're big so far, about to be huge. I mean, if you think in terms of, for an average program that's got first party tracking in place, now a proportion of, of the first party tracking, if it's only first party tracking, it won't be working because the consumer will be saying no to reject cookies or they'll want to manage their cookies. Proportion will like it. Now, of course, we see, and we see a huge proportion, I can't remember, it's over 80% of the advertisers have retained their third-party tracking, not on networks like, say, WebGains or Everflow or whatever, don't have a third-party backup. But for so many of them, we see... They've still got the third-party tracking in. Now, if it's a program that's been running 10 years, it probably only ever, ever had third-party tracking in. Now, when they put their first party in, they just forgot to take the third-party stuff out. So you've got first party and third party. Now, if the first party is firing, great. If the third party is firing as well, that will probably be firing even if somebody rejects cookies. So that's fine. But what happens next year when Google finally joins Firefox and Apple and the rest of them to say, okay, third party's gone. Everyone who has still had third party tracking running up until then, they're going to find a cliff edge of their tracking may well have dropped off because in the past year, over that year, they'll not have noticed if the first party tracking has become compromised, either by something daft like setting up an entirely new category within the website product and that category not having been set up correctly or not even having had the JavaScript put in the header for the category and all the product pages, where it might be the CMP has been introduced, which has interfered with it. And we see that so often. So leading up to the end of the cookie, leading up to the cookie deprecation by Google next year, what's the percent roughly that you feel like tracking is essentially not working? It doesn't have to be exact, but I'm curious. Yeah, it's so tough to actually kind of think in terms of those numbers. But if, say currently, if you are running third party, and we heard the bizarre story recently of a company, a major financial company in the UK, which has set up a brand new affiliate program, third party tracking only. Why on earth would you do that? Third party only means 25% to 30% of all the links sent to them are not going to track in the first place. Because anything over over Apple, um, site iOS, iPads, Apple um, in Safari, they won't track at all. ITP stopped it. Anyone using Firefox, it won't track. It will track through Google at the moment. Google from early next year is trialing in certain territories, deprecating third party, just to see the impact upon probably on their own earnings. Because you know the way Google runs, so the rest of us, it's down to mm-hmm. So people will start noticing stuff early next year. Now, if you think in terms of an average advertiser who's moving from third to first party, so an average one has probably got a tech team of, say, 10, 20, 30 techies, fine. 
if you're the size of a global organization with, say, 30 programs across 15 countries or something, it might be that your actual sprint time is three to six months for actually getting something done site-wide. So actually getting into that time. So if you think back three to six months from quarter four of next year, for instance, that needs to be started off by very latest, probably February. And with all the stuff happening over Q4, Black Friday, all the rest of it, nobody's going to be looking at anything before then. So they won't get scoped until March, maybe June, by which time it's too late. Their program is going to tank come October, November, in time for Christmas 2024. So it's going to be some very interesting time to see who's prepared, who's come to the party um, wearing a hat or who's not. (laughs) Now, how much do you think that utilizing something like API or server-to-server can support that transition or not, and where are the gaps there? Oh, yeah, API, server-to-server tracking is fine. But as most major advertisers will tell you, actually getting server-to-server installed is a phenomenal, very difficult technical project, which is why so many of these big advertisers resisted it. Oh, yeah, yeah, we can do first-party hooky, yeah, or we can do JavaScript in the headers and stuff like that. But it just needs to be managed properly, and so often we see it's not. Affiliate tends to get relatively short shrift compared to other marketing channels. So, for instance, the mm-hmm. SEO, PPC guys, if the PPC team say, we need this happening for this event, it happens really fast because every click and for some of these B2B, B2B programs, every click can be $20, $20 plus. So they need to make sure that the site actually responds and is able to track what's happened on those PPC clicks pretty much immediately. Uh, affiliate, it's going to be three weeks before your, your cashback affiliates actually notice that the cashback isn't happening. And so you've got a bit of leeway time. So affiliate tends to get pushed a little bit down. So when you've got a stack of paper on the, on the um, CTO's desk, uh, yeah, it can go down there, and it just keeps going further and further down. As affiliate now reflects about 18% or so of an average advertiser's revenue or earning opportunity, they will notice the difference if they start to compromise affiliate far too much. Advertisers, on average, we see change their websites between 2 and 5% every month. 2, two and 5% advertisers change their month, their advertisers, their programs and their platforms every month which means over a period of a year, more than 100% of advertising websites are changing. And each one of those changes can impact the tracking capabilities and tracking ability of the network. The network won't know anything about it because it's not within their wheelhouse. It's all being dealt with advertiser side. They've delivered them. The affiliate handover is delivered to the advertiser. And if they screw stuff up on their site, nobody will know until the canary in the coal mine and the cashback website actually starts squeaking and says, hang on, there's no cashback coming here. Every other affiliate will just see it start to drift down and the conversion rates will droop. And you might find, okay, that conversion's gone down there. Let's let's change my program to that. So then instead of promoting computer company A, I won't say any names, computer company B instead. So they start moving. So the program starts to kind of slow down and... Affiliate is then discounted. So not very good, this affiliate stuff, is it? Why don't we kind of just turn it off and we'll just carry on doing what we're doing? And then they realize, but because it's just not being tracked, 
that all of the sales they're getting, once they close the program, the sales just go through the floor. Think, oh, holy shit. The trouble is transparency. If there's no transparency of what's happening, and the beauty of Moonpool is it actually sheds a light on all of that stuff, is that actually set up to succeed? And if it's set up to succeed, you can guarantee that once it's set up to succeed and the cookie is actually fired correctly, by the time it hits the thank you page after the purchase, that stuff never gets screwed up with because that kind of piece of piece of code is never changed. You don't change your thank you page. You don't change your, your checkout page because that just breaks a whole load of stuff. Sorry, I've got a slash. Fantastic. <laughs> I love it. And uh, I love the ongoing theme of transparency, Chris. It seems like that just continues to come up through this whole conversation, continues to come up in your career, in your experience building pub discovery, in your experience with Moonpole. And I think my sense in working with you and talking to you and our work with the PMA together has been that that's kind of where our hope is for this industry to continue to build and improve on that transparency. So tip of the cap to you there. Cheers, thanks. Yeah, and uh, just one of the things we're working with with the Measurements Council kind of is uh, is looking at toolbars and all those kinds of things, which are incredibly non-transparent. Advertisers don't know what's going on. Huge companies with massive amounts of cash are behind the toolbars, so it's a bit like U.S. government lobbying. The people with the most cash get the most shouts, which means that they get the most attention, and it's exactly what's happening with the toolbar lobby. They're lobbying the advertisers saying, oh, yeah, yes, it's all incremental. And is it hell? Um, particularly when you see the cookie dropped or the cookie activated 15 seconds before somebody hits buy. It's not difficult to police. It's not difficult to deal with. It just there's a lack of will to, di- to deal with it correctly. Yeah, and I, I love the shining of the light. I think that that's the theme of, of a lot of, I think, the work that you are doing with the Performance Marketing Association, the, work, the collaboration that we have in talking about the measurements council. And I think the aim is to kind of elevate and shine light and say, here's the, here's the actual data. Here's the information. You can make an informed, more informed decision because of that. You know, I, it's funny in, in my old previous days getting into programmatic, I remember transparency was like the buzzword du jour and it comes in waves in different, in different areas. Right. And I think that it's kind of funny that 20 years later, we're actually still asking for more transparency. We're actually still advocating for more transparency in the industry. And so ideally, that only benefits the consumer, only benefits the buyer, the, the advertiser, and, and certainly the, you know, the partner in a lot of cases. Yeah. And that kind of transparency, it helps to drive far more informed decisions of where you allocate time, effort, budget, whatever it might be, to make sure that the overall goal and the drive of, of your company and your, and your marketing is in the right place, which means that you've got the right stuff for your consumers. Yeah. If they're cashback consumers, they know they're going to get a cashback and it's going to work. So they become perhaps yeah. more loyal customers through the cashback relationship. That stuff kind of happens. And uh, oh, don't get me get me started on yeah on the the budgets thing. Sorry. <laughs> one of, one of my soapboxes is is budgets for affiliate programs. Now, if you're running an affiliate program on a CPA basis, you only pay when somebody buys stuff, which means that if that happens, why the hell would you put a budget on it? You're going to close your door of your high street. Is Macy's going to close the door at Cap. week three of the month? Oh, we hit budget. We're going to go home for three for a week. 
They don't do it. You don't. Why would you do it online? It's madness, absolute madness. And you get people pausing their affiliate program. What? If there's a pause because it's costing you money, then you're doing it wrong. Because <laughs> on a CPA basis, it's the only way it works. It should be a revenue generator or a uh, rather than a cost center. Yeah. But essentially, if it's being managed properly. And if it was managed by the sales team the marketing, then if it's run, managed by the sales team, it would be worked like that. But too often it comes under marketing and as a cost. Well, the question also is interesting one. Would you apply a similar logic to paid search? If paid search was hitting your ROAS or MER goals, if you were getting lifetime value, you know, if you're getting quality, if you're hitting your goals on paid search, would you pause paid search? Probably not. Well, it's uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a bit like kind of um, is it Mr. McCorber or something from Charles Dickens or whatever. If you're if you're spending nineteen shillings and making a pound back, sorry, she's old school. If you say ninety cents and getting a dollar back, <laughs> then great. If you're spending a dollar but getting ninety cents back, then stop it. So if it's making a profit, why would you not do it? Yeah, exactly. And, and you bring up an interesting, you know, with the with the pound uh, shilling example, UK, US, what's the key difference you've observed in your career in terms of maybe the performance marketing space? I would say the biggest shock to me, first time I went to Affiliate Summit West back in 2000 something, eight, nine, whatever it was, is how massive the the lead gen side of affiliate is in the States. Now, there's a I think there's a, a real issue amongst CMOs of understanding of what affiliate is. They see lead generation and think that is affiliate, which is why when you're dealing with lead gen, you pause your lead gen campaigns. The trouble is so many CMOs, that's the breadth of their understanding, and they think they can pause a relationship campaign. You ask your wife if you can do that. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Good point. If you're dealing with... If you're dealing with partnerships or performance marketing with a partner, with a, a publisher that's got stuff happening all the time. So you don't tell um, Wall Street Journal, oh, we're pausing the affiliate stuff, so you're not going to earn something for week three of this month. That's not good, not pretty good for that relationship. So why would anybody ever pause a CPA affiliate program? It's just a nonsense. So you should never have that split personality. You should always deal with... Okay, they both use the affiliate model, as Gino loves to call them. It's not affiliate channel. The affiliate model is applied to multiple channels. The trouble is most CMOs only ever see it as a channel, and it should be a model. Deal with your lead gen channel, fine. Deal with it differently to your partnership and performance channel, which is about based on relationships. They're not the same thing. Yeah. Chris, if you are not working in digital, if you're not talking affiliate, tracking, transparency, what are you doing for fun outside of work? I bake. If anyone's seen me on Instagram, they probably realize I bake a bit. I love it. I enjoy making bread on whatever. And I sing. Wow. My passion is singing. Uh, this past weekend, I, sat, uh, I and the choir, we sang the services for Chester Cathedral here in the UK, which was fab. So you can actually look for Chester Cathedral for the 6th of August and you'll, you'll hear our choir singing the services there. So we sang an amazing Holston Dumitis and uh, Victoria Magnificat. So, yeah. Beautiful. If you're really into 
geekish music kind of uh or choral music then that's my that's my weakness that's really cool we, we'll have to the audience will have to look that up maybe we'll have to get a little sample from you at some point cool chris i really appreciate having you it's been a pleasure uh i feel like we could go on for for so much longer i definitely got it everyone got a sense of how much you've contributed to the affiliate industry from the performance marketing industry and also just aiming for a higher standard of, of transparency and, and, and value. So really appreciate you. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's been, uh, yeah, as you say, well, you know, I can talk all day, but uh, yeah, I'm sure we could have chatted on longer. <laughs> There's plenty. <of> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Have a great one. 